Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. How are you today? What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Hello. Thank you for tuning in. My guest today is Gina Nutt. She has a new essay collection out on $2 Radio. It is called Night Rooms. I finished it not too long ago. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed meeting Gina, getting to know her a little bit. That conversation is imminent. Happy Cinco de Mayo. This episode goes live on uh, Cinco de Mayo. Which follows uh, May the 4th, which is a, a holiday in my household. Because my son is obsessed with Star Wars. I'm getting a colonoscopy this week. My very first uh, colonoscopy, which I wanted to share with you, you heard it here first. And I had to go get a COVID test this morning because you have to get tested before you can have the procedure. I am slated to interview somebody for this show tomorrow. And there's like this whole preparation that you have to do before a colonoscopy involving like some combination of fasting, uh, like hydrating and laxatives. So there is some concern. I would characterize the concern as mild concern that I will be interviewing somebody amid a uh, like an, a, an acute episode of digestive upset. I don't mean to get too graphic. I, you know, I don't know what else to say. That's what's going on with me this week. I also got my driver's license updated. We have to get these things called real IDs. Is this a national thing? So I went to the DMV. I got a checkup. It's like that kind of week. I'm just getting all of this shit done. And I'm getting a colonoscopy. Somebody's got to drop me off. I don't know why I'm talking about this. Do we really need to hear about this? Today's episode is brought to you by McSweeney's. Publisher of a new essay collection by Courtney Zoffness called Spilt Milk. Spilt Milk is an excellent new essay collection that considers what we inherit from generations past, biologically, culturally, spiritually. And it's about what we pass on to our kids. This is an intimate, 
bracing, beautiful exploration of, uh, among other things, vulnerability and culpability as a human being and a parent on this planet. Publishers Weekly, in a starred review, calls the essays in Spilt Milk, quote, masterful and keenly perceptive. Spilt Milk by Courtney Zoffness, available now from McSweeney's. So my guest today is Gina Nutt. Her new essay collection, Night Rooms, is available now from $2 Radio. This is a book that, you know, it works on you in a strange way, or it worked on me in a strange way. Gina Nutt has an uncanny way of locating in her memory bank things that have had like unexpected ripple effects on her present existence. You sort of have to read it to know what I'm talking about. But it's an excellent and very unique collection. Again, it's called Night Rooms. And I just love meeting Gina. So let's do the conversation, shall we? Here she is, folks. This is Gina Nutt. And once again, her new book, her new essay collection, is called Night Rooms. I think of it a lot like dancing in a sense where the point is don't make it look like work. It can't look like the effort is there, but there was a lot of labor uh, that went into finding cohesion and making it feel like it wasn't just a bunch of scattered thoughts that somehow fit together. And I, I do think from the start, I was thinking of it and conceiving of it as a whole book. And I saw an arc once I, once I decided to go for it as a book. And I think that a lot of the the time I spent was kind of figuring out where I could move pieces and how I could amplify that arc and some of the, the callbacks that happen later in the collection. And because there's a lot of circularity in the book too. So I write about Ithaca early on and circle back to it. But that wasn't a natural thing. That was something that emerged after revision and after a lot of uh, moving pieces around and just kind of feeling stuck. Um, I think for me, like getting stuck is really important and feeling like frustrated to the extent where I'll step away from a project or a piece of work for a while and come back to it later. Um, And so that was, that was a big part of it was getting stuck a lot, but also just waiting and being patient because I think when we give ourselves time, that's when you just kind of can step away and say, okay, this is going, this thread emerges later, or this idea emerges later. I think too, that that's, that's a way we can kind of let our minds evolve and let ideas evolve too. Um, and mature in a sense. Well, and also like, sometimes I think if you step away from a, a piece of writing, if you find you, if you find yourself in a stuck place, and maybe especially if you're working in this kind of collage associative, lyrical, poetic, however you want to describe it mode, sometimes like you step away, you give it some breathing room, you come back to it, and suddenly there's a fresh association. It's like the missing puzzle piece. Yeah. And so that was something that happened to me as I was working on it. So at a point as I was revising, I, I realized that the manuscript on 
a word doc was just way too unwieldy because there were too many too many pieces and too many parts. So I actually made color-coded note cards that were basically different threads. So I had the different horror movies on blue note cards. I had different memories from childhood, from teenhood, from the present moment. And those were all on different color cards that I taped up on my office wall. And I started moving pieces around and pulling pieces off the wall, adding new ones. And that's when I really felt like the book was starting to take shape. And I was seeing those new ideas emerging and those new threads. It also was kind of, it was also kind of a motivator, right? I'd come into my office every day and see this wall of unfinished ideas and just kind of unpursued thoughts that were waiting for me. Um, so during times when I was stepping away, it was nice to feel like this is still here. It's just hibernating. But when I was working on it, it was really good to be able to go between this unwieldy word doc and something that felt like it was taking shape and emerging. So when you're using these, uh, like from a, a process standpoint, when you're using these color-coded note cards and you have the various threads that you're trying to weave together, did you try to achieve some level of symmetry in terms of like the sequencing? Was it like one teen memory, one, you know, horror movie? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, did you try to make a pretty picture on your wall with repeating patterns or was it less organized than that? I love that idea. I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> That's really cool. Next, the next book, I'll try and make a pretty, a pretty picture with it. But for this one, I, I didn't. I think having the color coding did help me see. Oh, there are four movies in a row here, and there's none of, there's nothing personal. And so that's when I was able to see. Okay, I need to move this personal memory up, or I wanted to bring in a little bit of outside research about death or weird home buying details. Uh, so it did help to that extent because I could see when I had a whole row of blue or a whole row of green. Um, that's when I was like, oh, let's break it up a little. So that's, it, it ended up, ended up dividing a lot of the, you know, movie heavy stretches that way. But I'm going to save the idea. <laughs> I think like this, I think the, this idea of like symmetry and like repeating patterns appeals to like the, like the neat neck kind of like anal retentive side of my personality, like the orderliness of that appeals to me, like as I imagine it. But I think in practice, you have to be a little looser than that when you're writing. Like sometimes it's going to deviate from my rigid vision. <laughs> right. Well, and I feel like that's when stuff gets really interesting. Like I used to teach and I would bring in prompts from time to time. And I always encouraged my students, like when you go beyond the prompt, you know, stick with it if you want. But when you go beyond it, that's when something gets really interesting. And I felt like that was the case with this collection was, you know, starting with horror movies and personal experiences. That was cool. But when I started thinking about other things, other interests I had, like taxidermy or, you know, this process of buying a house, which is its own, you know, onslaught of horrors. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, this is actually 
something that I could live with this. I can live inside this book for a while and I want to just marinate in these ideas and swim here for a good long while. (laughs) Well, Um, I think too, like what happens uh, or what can happen is, you know, you have your sort of uh, stated themes that you're going to work on horror movies, personal experiences. But then as you say, like suddenly you find yourself curious about taxidermy and you're Googling taxidermy or you're checking out books at the library on taxidermy and not only are you taken in a new direction that's like invigorating and interesting to you, but don't you also sometimes find like really surprising, like pleasantly surprising synchronicities between the new direction and like the baseline thematic concerns of your book? Like you'll be like, oh my God, I had no idea that this taxidermist was also haunted by Jaws or you know what I'm saying? Like you find these, these kind of connective lines that you never could have predicted and, or, you know, I'm, I'm obviously projecting all of this onto you. Feel free to refute me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but I think this happens often in the creative process and it can feel like an affirming thing where it's like, okay, I'm on the right breadcrumb trail. Like, you know, it makes you feel like you're, you're doing something that you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. I felt that way with like the home buying essay in particular, um, because there were just details from the home buyers course that I took that were just too good to not include like the fact that if a house has had a death happen inside it, the phrase that a realtor will use is emotional defects. Like that's the actual (laughs) phrase. And I was like, that's so that's, I mean, there's a, there's a poet somewhere who's going to just leap at that and they should be (laughs) because it's so good. Um, Well, this is, wait, this is making me, uh, just to interrupt, this is making me think of uh, the house across the street from me was, this has happened to me twice in Los Angeles. So, okay, we share something in common. I know this from reading your book. And I think that maybe we share this in common with like a lot of people. And we, I feel like it's easy to personalize death and to feel death haunted and to feel followed by death. Like, of course you would, especially as you grow older. But I have a neighbor across the street who was an uh, elderly woman, I believe in her 90s, who in the time that I've lived in this house, which is now going on six years, I never saw ever once. And she was older. She had a caretaker who came and checked in on her, you know, daily or a couple times a week or whatever and brought her groceries and everything. And one day, uh, the, we saw the caretaker outside crying and she was like, she died. And so I've got young kids and it was like, they've got to go in and they've got to remove the body. And we're, we're like trying to make sure like my kids are going off to school and it's like, we don't want... My daughter's very sensitive and like a nervous Nelly. So at the same time, you don't want to like insulate them from reality in some sort of, you know, weird and unhelpful way. So it's trying to navigate all that as a parent. And then to make like a long story somewhat short, when I first moved to Los Angeles, I had a neighbor who I never saw, an elderly woman who lived alone in the house next door to me. And I didn't even know she was there until she died and they uh, came to, you know, they sold the house. Her kids came and sold the house and she had cats and like her house was sort of blocked by trees. So I couldn't even really see where her bedroom was, but this woman was sort of like physically limited and she would just open her window on the second floor and dump cat litter into her backyard. So when they sold the house, they found like a mountain of cat litter, like six feet high 
that was infested with rats and it was next door to my house and I had no idea. So anyway, it come for some reason I got off on this tangent, but it feels like of a piece thematically. <laughs> it feels, it feels extra because I very much love cats and um, that seems really, it's like one of those really good breadcrumbs to share. So I'm, I'm really sorry about your neighbors and that twice you've had this experience. It also feels like synchronicity here. What's happening? Know? What is it about me? Why are my neighbors dying like this? You know, and it's also I like, man, it's like so sad strange. to think of growing old and being uh, alone like that. You know, it's just terrible. But I guess if you live long enough, you know, it's going to probably come to pass, at least to some degree. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, before we get any further, I think it's useful for our listeners to hear you try to describe Night Rooms which, incidentally, whenever I think of it or say the title, I say it to the melody of the Bob Seger song, Night Moves, which I don't know. If, I think this is going to be common for people. I don't know. I might be the only person who's willing to admit it, but I do sing it to myself. <laughs> um, so this is a – like you, you say it. It's a, it's a collection of poetic essays, dot, dot, dot. That weaves personal – experiences and images and tropes from horror movies to meditate on death, grief, body image, mental illness, suicide. That's good enough. Cultural, dark cultural ephemera, dark tourism. Um, I've come to the point where <laughs> I've started to feel like I, I ran with all my, all my dark whimsy, everything that's kind of fascinated me for a really long time and horrified me that I kind of was just like, I'm going to just do all these things in this one book, which is interesting because it's so slim for such a slim book. Like I'm really surprised I got to run with all the ideas I did. Well, but you um, know what it did for me is it reminded me of how like deeply ingrained a lot of culture is. You know, we watch horror movies as kids. I can remember so vividly watching Nightmare on Elm Street when I was like in fifth grade. And I haven't watched it since probably. You know what I'm saying? Maybe a couple more times in junior high or something, but it's completely removed from me. But then, or Jaws or any of these things, like they really work on you. 
in in ways that you might not always be conscious of. And then, you know, reading your book, I was like, damn, uh, like I am that like Jaws did fuck me up. I think it fucked up everybody. Like, how can you go in the ocean after you've seen Jaws and not hear that song or, you know, be thinking about what's, you know, what's possibly hunting you? <laughs> I can hardly do the lake here in Ithaca. We have Cayuga Lake and for swimming in that lake, I, <laughs> I just feel like I've heard stories of like the lake monster which isn't in the book, but I, I, I don't want to know what the lake monster is. I know the first night we moved here, we went swimming in the lake and I cut up my feet on um, zebra mussels. And that <laughs> that's the closest I've gotten to lake monsters. Wait, what is a um, lake monster? What, there's a monster in the lake? That's It's rumored. It's oh. rumored there's a, a monster in Cayuga Lake because there are parts of it that are very, very deep. I don't... I don't know if I believe it. I think it's probably like a Loch Ness monster ripoff. Like Ithaca wants a Loch Ness monster, so be good for tourism, you know. But no one's there's never been like sighting. <laughs> it would be good for tourism, right? We've got the farmers market, we've got the lake monster, <laughs> and we've got the gorgeous and the gorgeous, I mean, right? So it's a little bit of everything. I've seen those bumper stickers for such a long time. Ithaca is gorgeous. And they factor in to your death essays, like your death haunted essays as well, because there are, I guess, you know, there are a lot of people who, who leap to their death from bridges in the area, like, which I did not know. So there were previously, um, they've since put up nets beneath the bridges and that was following a series of like a, a cluster of suicides. And so they were trying to determine Cornell in the city it was trying they were trying to figure out the best way to prevent suicides and initially they put up uh fences really tall fences and there was local outcry because the fences ruined the views the fences made people think about suicide and that was the argument and eventually they came to you know determine that they could do nets beneath the bridges that'll catch people um, so we've had fewer incidences. I think it's funny. Like what I'm imagining though, is like somebody jumps and then lands in one of these nets and like nobody realizes it. And then they just die of starvation in the net or something. But I guess like if you get caught in the net, you can call out for somebody. <laughs> like, I'm just like, what happens right. to you? What happens to you once you get caught in the net? Somebody has got to go fish you out. I, hopefully somebody comes by and can hear you. And there's, yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't seem like the most compassionate response because it, there's still I still have questions about how compassionate this is for people who are really struggling, like and just the stigma of that, like you're in the net and you're waiting. Um, but I don't, I I don't mean to laugh. Like, I don't mean point, to laugh, by the way. No, no. I, <laughs> I, I wonder at that point if like, yeah, if they just haven't gotten that far as to like a better way to do it. I mean, we also have, you know, a couple colleges like Cornell, we have Ithaca College, TC3. Um, so like the mental health initiatives at those schools are, I think, always thinking about, you know, ways to better improve, you know, the students' mental health, faculty's mental health. Um, but I do think the Nets have decreased that presence in, in the community here. But I remember when we moved here, that was like, so strange to me like it was such a strange thing to learn like that these beautiful like you know the bumper stickers the t-shirts that that was also part of it like this darker side to like this 
booming tourist industry. Well, it makes me um, think of the Golden Gate Bridge too, which is like number one, or you know, I think it's the number one suicide destination in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something kind of crass about these debates that erupt in um, the public square over whether or not to take preventative measures, you know, with nets or fencing or whatever. And that's been a debate, I believe, in San Francisco for a long, long time about whether or not to, you know, put suicide nets on the Golden Gate Bridge because, you know, there are people who say we should do this to save people. There are people who say it mars the look of the bridge. It's like an aesthetic argument. Like to me, it's like, yeah, put some nets up, right? I mean, yeah, obviously, it, it kind of seems like do the do the thing that's going to help people in the long run. I don't know. I'm kind of I'm beyond aesthetic concerns of like, oh, does this like air quotes ruin the views of the gorge? It's like that that's kind of beside the point yeah. uh, when it comes to people, you know, choosing death. Um, but yeah, okay, it's so definitely a dark. I want to talk about suicide because I have experience with this kind of loss uh, and I have talked about it on this show. Uh, I've had writers on this show. I had one one writer that comes to mind who wrote a book explicitly about suicide, like a nonfiction book. Um, But certainly something that I think most of us have some experience with, either culturally or personally. And there's this idea of it haunting me uh like i relate very much to this idea of suicide in particular uh, like as a form of death that sort of stays with you and like this i want to say you either say it in the book or i was reading an interview you did where you said it you feel like it's following you (laughs) um i relate very much to that you know it's like uh, it's definitely something that you know once you you've been through that kind of loss it's hard to shake. And even if you maybe have some experience, not necessarily immediately, but at close range, it can haunt you. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a sticky one. Like, can you talk a little bit about your experiences with it and how it factored into the book? Yeah. So the, the suicide that I think prompted me to write the earliest essay toward the book was my father-in-law's suicide. And it was completely destabilizing. Um, it was just, as they all were, surprising, unexpected. Just there was no no warning or no indicator that this could happen. Um, and I wrote the initial essay about anxiety and it follows and suicide after he chose suicide um, because my uncle, my mother's brother, had also died by suicide 15 months earlier. So I was just starting to feel the sense that I was just trying to unravel and understand like, what is this, this sense? Like it's, it's, it felt like it was following me or like it was always in close range. Um, and so I dove in on that because I was like, I can't stop thinking about death. I was kind of just obsessed with trying to unravel and understand why these people in my life chose this. And then I kind of came to the place as I kept writing, as I stuck with it, um, going further back in my own personal experiences to other suicides in my life um, and my own mental health and just kind of reaching a place in my own life where I kind of was like, I need to kind of take my own 
mental health more seriously. I need to take care of myself um, and to, you know, not, not be in this place, to not feel this pull or to stick around, you know, because I started to feel like the weight of like, this is, this is what can potentially happen if, you know, people don't address their and take care of themselves. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, a couple things you said um, resonate with me. First of all, this idea that anxiety follows uh, a suicide. I don't know if necessarily that's something that people who haven't been through it understand. And I guess it might not be a blanket experience, but it was certainly the case for me. After my friend took his own life, I went through a period in the aftermath where I was having like disrupted sleep. I, I had a, a lot of trouble sleeping, and I'm sure that had something to do with anxiety. That's, that's how I would label it. And destabilizing is a good word. I think too, once you know somebody who's done this in a weird way for me, it like opened up the possibility of it. It was like, Oh, like this is a thing people really do. Even though I knew abstractly that people, you know, have done it since the dawn of man, you know, when it's somebody, you know, and care for all of a sudden it just becomes real in a way that it wasn't previously. And that is profoundly scary. Like just knowing like, wow, the membrane between life and death is so thin. And to cross through by your own volition is actually pretty simple, you know, when it comes down to it. And that's, that's a lot to process. Yeah. When you have that recognition, it is, that's, that's where that heightened anxiety can come in when you start to feel like it really is that simple. Anyone can make this choice. It not only, it it makes you see everyone in your life. I don't know if this was your experience, but I kind of saw everyone in my life differently after that. Like, and every concern or every worry they had suddenly like felt like the most important thing in the world too, right? Like everything feels more serious after that. Every sadness or every concern feels like, could that be the thing that that does it for someone? I don't know. In a sense, it made me feel like like we're more beholden to take one another seriously, whether it's like, I didn't get a good night's sleep last night, or I'm sick of my job, or, you know, my dog passed away. You know, all those concerns, which are like dog passing away is actually very sad and big. Um I got stuck in traffic, but all those concerns, like from the banal every day to like those really intense things, like for me, it really following those deaths, like I was really thinking like we really should take one another more seriously and just be more present emotionally for each other. And I know that this is like an intense deep dive, but those are things I was thinking about with how do we, how do people like pick up that responsibility for each other? And also for, for ourselves, being able to reach out to people. Yeah, you know, I uh, I hear a lot of that. And I think what you often hear in the aftermath of a suicide is, like, you know, you couldn't have known. It's not your fault. Um, you know, the person who took his or her own life, you know, did it of their own uh, volition. And, you know, oftentimes it's a big shock because it was held close to the vest and you just couldn't have seen it coming it's still really hard in the aftermath for a thinking, feeling person not to feel some sense of failure. 
like a failure to be there, just like you're saying. Like I certainly am that way and it was forever changed, I think. Uh, not that I bat a thousand or that I got like, you know, perfect at it, but I do think it made me more empathic and I do think it made me more sensitive to the ways in which people suffer and in particular to the ways in which people suffer under the radar, which is always the case, I think, or most often the case with people who take their own lives is that you have no idea what somebody's going through. You know, you may think you know somebody, but there could be an entire world of uh, hurt that's like roiling beneath the surface that a person never speaks of. Uh, so it's like that old thing, you know, like everybody's fighting a hard battle. <laughs> uh, I don't mm -hmm. always remember it, but I think it's, you know, I think it's true. And, um, you know, it's kind of an ideal to aspire to is to try to be there for people and to try to have patience and empathy and, um, you know, who knows what kind of difference you can make in somebody's life if you're that way at the right time. Yeah. I do feel it's like one of those situations where like the heart kind of like cracks open. I love that phrase. <laughs> you know, it's I've heard it a lot of people who, who choose to have children like that phrase of like the heart cracking open. It's a different way for the heart to crack open. But I think it's one way that it did for me. Um, it just expands your sense of human feeling like I don't bat a thousand either. I'm going to admit like I'm on here, like very calmly talking about like being there for people, but it's impossible. I think sometimes because we don't always know. And that's, I think that's something that, that I talk a little bit about in the book is like, we have this whole language for like destigmatizing mental, you know, there's this really kind of hermetically sealed way of speaking about even the phrase mental health, you know, we have these phrases for talking about anxiety or depression, but even those feel somewhat empty sometimes and they feel very unfeeling and, and cold sometimes to me. So, yeah, I feel like too, yeah. I feel like too, when you get into certain territory, whether it's grief or any kind of like difficult emotional issue, could be cultural, social, you name it, you know, and you get into a conversation around something like that. And there, I feel like language becomes really loaded, uh, or it can. And mm -hmm. I grow frustrated oftentimes when I see dialogues unfolding online, usually, where people start hammering each other for misusing language when they're trying to talk in good faith. There's no perfect way. You know, it's difficult. It's, when you get into, like, a conversation around something like this, it's like walking into a minefield. And I always, my impulse anyway, is to try to be patient. Like, Hey, it's hard to talk about this stuff. If somebody is operating in good faith and they're not actively mm -hmm. trying to harm anybody or be an asshole, like give them a break, you know, <laughs> too often I feel like you get into this and somebody says the wrong thing, you know, and somebody just jumps on them. Um, do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I, it's somewhat, it's like in my rear view because I left Twitter in 2018. Good for you. So I feel like I, I left, it's, it has its, you know, pros and cons. Uh, I feel like, especially in the last year or so it's, I felt a little like I'm missing a, a whole level of no, like connecting and banter, but connection and banter. But, um, I, I don't miss this feeling like even when you, people are trying to do something right or good, that there's like, 
you're doing it wrong. Right, right. It's just a really hard, it's a really hard time to be alive. I feel like it's always been a really hard time to be alive. We're just more vocal about it now. Um, but I think that's something I don't miss. I don't miss feeling like um, language can be that microscopically examined. There are certainly things that should be like mentioned or called in, but there are certainly things where I'm just like, this person's really trying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it's a case by case basis. And I do think it's important to have conversations around language when it comes to talking about, um, important or difficult subjects. Like it's, it's appropriate, but I just think that sometimes, you know, people get wound up and, you know, I, I no longer tweet. I, I read Twitter, which I guess is maybe cheating. Um, but it's always been like a news aggregator for me. So I go on and read, but I don't participate, which has made it a much healthier situation for me. Um, I say this and like, I recently tweeted, I was tweeting about microphones for the first time in a year. And the, the joke is that like, I had not tweeted in a year and I finally tweeted and I immediately got hammered for talking about microphones the wrong way and had to like delete the thread. And I was like, okay, I'm out, I'm done. (laughs) You know, like... Uh, it was a, it was a sign, but I don't know, you know, it's like, it's kind of like, um, it's comp it's complicated because I do think you need to be mindful of language, um, all the time, like how you speak, you know, words can harm. So you want you don't want to do harm, but if you're operating in good faith and it's difficult territory and you might have blind spots or it's just emotionally loaded, like, I think we do need to be patient with each other there too and sometimes that patience can be lacking when you know emotions get the best of people i really like that your thread was about microphones though i mean (laughs) we and that we talked about microphones this is i have been preaching about the importance of authors having microphones it's my new cause (laughs) is that will there be a like a brad listy nea we can all apply for microphone grants I or just so. the microphones just get delivered to us? <laughs> like, is that something we can all put in for? I, you know, I am advocating for a world in which every author can have a microphone and uh, I'm going to lobby powerful business leaders to try to create a fund to make this a reality in our world. How does that sound? That sounds amazing. <laughs> Brad Listy Blue. There, there you go. <laughs> um. So I want to talk, I want to talk with you about culture, horror movies. We've touched on it a little bit and the ways in which these things work on us, not only as we're watching them, but then after the, you know, after the fact and for years and for the rest of our lives, you know, these things get kind of embedded somewhere in our brains. And I have been talking probably too much in recent episodes about how my tolerance as I've grown older has grown limited when it comes to my ability to take in um like really violent imagery movie i just have no desire like life is shitty enough i don't need to go to bed at night watching some movie about you know uh, or a documentary about like the some serial killer you know like that's that's not entertainment to me the question i have is that like hey that might just be a maybe i'm just stating my personal taste But when it comes to toxicity, I think the argument I make to myself is that like, you know, cultural products, movies, books, magazines, podcasts, 
you know, these things are like a kind of food. And I, I wonder what the redeeming quality, like, have you ever thought about like what the redeeming quality is in a horror movie? Like watching some like Freddy movie where Freddy's like butchering teenagers. Like wh what is it? I mean, I guess this is a way for us to like live our fears or nightmares and to kind of, I don't know, go through the catharsis of seeing it played out on screen. Like, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. And I think that that's something that I was trying to peel back to in the book was kind of trying to understand why would I watch these movies, especially given some of the things that I've experienced and or witnessed, why would I dive into horror of all things? And I think, I think you're right. Like part of it is this kind of watching it, it it's cathartic in a sense maybe watching it play out on screen but it also is like a safe it's a contained catastrophe i think in is one thing phrase i use there are these kind of safe experiences where there's some distance but i think too that there are also movies that strive to and successfully comment on the world we live in um and we've seen this i think not only in more recent years, movies like Us, movies like Get Out, but also like a movie from the 80s, like Society, which is a movie about a, a country club, which has a really strange initiation process. <laughs> and the last 15 minutes of that film are very just grotesque and nasty, but it's a remark on class and generational wealth. And so it, as trashy and tacky as that film is, it's saying something about our culture and rich people. <laughs> so I, I do think there are films that that want to say something about the world we live in. Freddy might be a hard one to understand. That one might just be pure nightmare. Yeah, I think like I think there can be like cultural concerns. I love the mashup of like the traditional horror movie with like a social commentary I feel like that elevates it. And I think a lot of times, you know, the classic horror movies are, they're speaking to something along those lines. Um, and I think it also, and I say this with like a kind of mournful, uh, you know, tone is, uh, it's a great communal experience in the theater to see a horror movie with a group of people and to have that kind of contained catastrophe together. Um, th there's something great and probably useful about that, but I guess maybe once you've done it enough and you have like whatever set of, you know, horror tropes embedded into you, maybe I just hit my limit. Like, do I need any more? Like, I get it. You know, like, <laughs> I, I don't want to be closed off, but like, I just, I can't sleep and I need more than anything. I think I treasure sleep as an adult. Um, it's, like, <laughs> it's my drug, you know, but, uh, you know, you, you, you take these things in. And I think maybe as an adolescent, which was like my peak horror phase, which I think tracks pretty well in terms of how it's supposed to go or how it usually goes, um, they do ha help you sort of work through fears. And, you know, there's, I think a lot of, you know, there's a lot been written about how, you know, as your body is changing and you're going through puberty and, you know, horror movies maybe work on your brain in a way that like helps to assuage you know, anxieties you might have around that or, you know what I'm saying, right? Like it's, you probably. Yeah, like a movie like Jennifer's Body, which is about how horrible it is to be a teenage girl. I It's something because like now as an adult, you know, I'm, I watch that and I'm like, 
being a teenage girl is really, really horrible and unfun. <laughs> but I think too, there are some movies that like, maybe I appreciate them later, more later, if that makes any sense. Like, oh, that was a cool movie when I was younger, but now it's like really, it lands a lot more. Some of them land more now for me, which has been, which was an interesting experience as I was writing and, and revising was just kind of like, oh, this lands different. Like there were movies that I like more. There were movies that I was like, I'm not really into this anymore. Um, there were definitely some that I tried to rewatch and was just like, man, this is just too much. I can't, I, I can't just sit here for this. I'm done. I remember, <laughs> so, I remember, and then there some. well, I mean, I, there's one movie uh, that you bring up, The Last House on the Left, which is, I think, Wes Craven, right? It was mm -hmm. like a 70s horror classic, like kind of like a, yes, it's like a new, maybe that was like a, it's a historically significant horror movie, as I understand it in film history. But I distinctly remember renting that when I was in my junior high horror phase, you know, during which I basically rented every single horror movie at the video store. I watched every one. Like it was a, I was obsessed for like two years of my life. And I remember my friends and I watching Last House on the Left, which it's kind of low budget, as I recall it. It's been so many years since I've seen it. But like the, the sort of like, low budge seventies visual aesthetic on its own creeped me out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. And I, uh, I can't even like, I, if I, if I had to sit down and recall the plot, I can't, but there's one scene that is indelible and that's usually how these films work. You know, there's like certain images or scenes that kind of stay with you and they get embedded in your circuitry and they sort of flower in your mind at unexpected times, you know? Yeah, I, re I remember that film too. Like my first watch of that was not a pleasant experience. And I just remember like it annihilated me and the person I was seeing at the time, he was just insisting like how we, we had to see this violent act occur to understand the parents' revenge. And I just remember being not only upset by the movie, but upset by this person who couldn't understand like... <laughs> why I was so upset. Um, it was kind of like boyfriends explain horror to me. <laughs> well, wait, okay. Wait, 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 wait. Now I have to, now I have to interject that maybe one of the, um, practical uses of horror movies is a way for us to vet potential partners, you know, in terms of like the psychodynamics <laughs> and how they respond and how they expect you to respond. <laughs> That's a really good possibility. I think we should, that should, you know, a scholar should pick that up. Yes. Okay. You're welcome, scholars, for that uh, <laughs> brilliant idea. Or essayists. Yes. <laughs> um, but I just remember that being such a weird watch experience. Like, he just seemed so devoted to this idea. And, yeah, that went really well. <laughs> I remember giving a ex, you know, one of my old um, girlfriends, I, I remember giving her the Celine novel journey to the end of the night. I think I've talked about this, but that might be a mark against me in terms of my, like, what kind of, what kind of book is that to give to a young woman? <laughs> I was like, I thought it was so good at the time. I was like, this is so good. And it's like really not a book to give to someone you're dating. But anyway, you know, you can't win them all. <laughs> right. You tried. I tried. <laughs> I thought it was, it, it isn't, it's a classic, but you know, it's very dark. Um, yeah. so, okay. I want to ask you, since your book is so death concerned, uh, 
I don't know how much you'd get into the afterlife or the potential of an afterlife. Maybe my memory is failing me, but it seems like a worthwhile question to ask. I, I, I've gone through phases on this show where I've just asked it of writers in general, just because I think it's like, it's such a like primordial question, you know, that, if, that I think all of us are obviously concerned with. But for somebody who has spent a significant amount of time swimming in these waters, so to speak, like, do you have a sense of what happens um, post-death? Like, do you have any feelings of conviction or strong hunches? <laughs> I have, <laughs> I have like family stories of what relatives have seen happen or what they've said they've seen happen to bodies of people who've passed. But in terms of like what happens to my consciousness, what happens to me, I think it's oblivion. I think it's just nothing. I know that's really sad and nihilistic sounding like, I hope there's like a universe or a presence or a something where I'm like with everyone who's passed on with all my dead cats. And, you know, like that to me is the dream. But what I think what I'm convinced is true is that it's just nothingness, which is kind of horrifying to me. Like that's more frightening to me than the actual like sense of how I get there. Like the eternal nothing is what's sad to me and kind of horrifying, um, especially because life is so full of books. It's so full of people and love and to have just the opposite of that is horrifying. I feel like this is really intense. I hope that's okay. <laughs> well, no, I mean, if that's what you, you... ask. No, exactly. And I think like, I think a lot of us feel that way. I think a lot of us maybe. Like that might be the hunch or that might be the fear, you know, like, oh, we're just headed for oblivion. Um, and it's obviously impossible to know until you go through the, the process. Uh, but I like to ask, you know, like I'm always curious what people think. And I don't know. I go, I go, I think in phases, like sometimes I'll think oblivion. Other times I'll think like in the kind of circular logic, you know, everything is working in cycles. Maybe there's something like reincarnation seems like it could be a thing, you know, just look at like observing the way the universe works. But, um, I, I think I've sort of given up on some sort of like cloud city where you, you do a happy dance with your dead relatives. Like that seems a little too easy. <laughs> and, I know it's, it's, it's what I'd like. That's on the, if I can have my wish list, like that's on the wish list is that I get to see people again. I get my cats and, um, you know, all that, but, you know, most things aren't what we wish or what those idealized, you know. Have you ever seen a ghost? I don't think so. Well, so there's, <laughs> so I write about the childhood monster, the four day win, but I only understand that as a, as a presence. I don't, I don't think I actually saw something. And if I did, I don't remember what I saw. Um, so I've never physically seen a ghost. We did have in my house, we had an encounter last November, <laughs> the, uh, the water shut off and we had no running water for, for a day. It was the day after Thanksgiving. And we were like, what is going on? We ended up calling someone from the city to come out to our house because we had no, no one had been in the basement. It was just my husband and me. And this poor person from the city came out 
and goes down in the basement and they tell us that the water has been turned off. Like the, the thing that you need a tool or a very strong hand grip to turn to allow water to flow into the house had been turned off. So we think we have a ghost presence in our house. Well, okay. Because neither of us have been down there. Okay. <laughs> have well, you so, seen one? No, I'm. I would love to, but they, these. This is the thing. These things never visit me. I never get the. You know, I talk to people who have like, yeah, there's a ghost. You know, they constantly are seeing ghosts, and I'm like, why am I not? Like, what's wrong with me? Like, where is my antenna faulty? You know, but. Do you want me to send you mine? Yeah, no, actually, I need my water. <laughs> but uh, I think, like, at least this has got to give you some pause in terms of your oblivion theory, you know, because it doesn't seem to square. If we, you know, you would think that a ghost who can shut off your water supply is in some sort of um, purgatory or, you know, certainly not in this particular reality in a form that is similar to, you know what I'm saying? Like they're on the other side somehow. So that wouldn't square with oblivion. That's true. I guess maybe I just assume, maybe I'm assuming that I'm going to like finish everything I need to finish and that that ghost has something she needs to finish. Although I guess messing with our water doesn't really make much sense. But the ghosts, I I think that's the sort of domestic hijinks that ghosts get up to, right? Like they're like, turning off your water or knocking over your, you know, glass of water or whatever it is, you know, they, they are always like doing these like minor little like annoying things as my understanding goes. Well, we're still getting mail for a past, even though we've been here for years, we're still getting mail for a past home owner of this house. And I did look up that person's name and that person passed away. So maybe this person's mad or the presence, the ghost is mad. We keep getting the mail. You got to burn some sage, don't you? Something like that. <laughs> Why does that work? I don't know how that became a thing, but I mean, I'm willing to try anything. And I'm now know, thinking, right? I'm now thinking because the house where the woman across the street passed away is in the process of renovation and it's going to be rented out because the guy who lives next door bought it um, to become a rental property and I'm thinking like, wow, when you make that listing, do you have to include the fact that there is an emotional defect in this rental? Is that, isn't that the term you, you were talking about? Yeah. Is that, I wonder if they have to do it for rentals or, and also it it's different from state to state. So I don't know what the laws are in California and how they go about that for rentals. I haven't seen it. I mean, in my years of renting here, I never saw anybody, I mean, you live in a place that's been around long enough. Somebody probably died in it, right? I mean, the odds are decent if it's yeah. a hundred, a hundred year old bungalow. But um, I want to talk to you about, uh, I guess, like childhood dance, beauty pageants, like th- this sort of um, this world factors in. Jean Benet Ramsey factors in as a cultural, um like a shared cultural experience that I think a lot of us, uh, you know, have some connection to. I have a very direct connection to it. Cause I was living in Boulder at the time I, w- I went to school there and I oh, lived wow. in a house one block. I was in, I was in the house. I want to say Jean Bonnet was on 15th street. I lived on 16th street in the house on the exact same placement as her house. So, I mean, literally like could throw a stone uh, like out of our backyard into her front yard. And, um, 
I remember, I mean, this was like a college house. It was like six dudes and like eight dogs. And, you know, it was, it was a mess. And I remember being there one day and there was a knock on the door and it was Boulder police officers. And this was a good while after the, the death, you know, like this was not in the immediate weeks after it was like months after. So it wasn't something that we were necessarily anticipating. And these police officers wanted to like question us because they kind of bunk the whole thing was a shit show, right? You know, and they were trying to like go around the neighborhood and collect information just to make sure that they are, you know, turned over every stone basically. And if you can imagine it, it's like me and my friend, we were the only two home and like, you know, however many dogs we had and there were just like bongs everywhere. <laughs> like <laughs> I think we were smoking pot and like suddenly like there are these boulder cops just like standing in the living room with us and you know, everything's out in plain view. They didn't care. And they were just asking us questions about Jean Bonnet. And I was like really high just being like, I was, you know, I don't even think I was in town because it happened close to Christmas. If I'm recalling, Mm -hmm. I think I had left for the break, you know, but it was just like a surreal experience of, uh, you know, a police, like a, a gentle police interrogation. They didn't stay long once they, I think, realized how stoned we were. <laughs> but uh, that whole that whole thing, like, what a ter- like, what a terrifying and just like deeply sad, and also like maddeningly, enduringly mysterious murder that is. Like, I can't believe we have never found out what happened to that poor little girl. Yeah, and I remember when it first happened. I mean, I was young when it when it happened and my friend and I, you know, we were both, we had both been in these mall beauty pageants together. And it was like this first, it was like the first almost I'm laughing, but it's really sad. Like it was the first collective experience collective I'm saying, but of a death that seemed important. Like it was our first celebrity death in a sense, because here was this pageant girl And to us, it was just this completely, we just didn't understand. So um, there was that aspect to it too, but it's mind blowing that we never figured that out, that they never solved this case. Yeah. It's kind of unreal when you think about it. Do you have any theories? Like, do you have, like, I don't know how much time you spent like diving into the weeds on it. I don't have theories. I wish I, I wish I did. Like, I wish I had like a ready answer but it's so complex and yeah I've never been able to be like it's 100% this um because I feel like there have been so many documentaries and specials that every time it seems like oh this is what happened there's something else to contradict it so it's one of those really weird it's one of those really weird cases where there's always like contradicting evidence or more wormholes one could definitely like fall down the internet hole, like just researching. Well, and I think like, you know, it's uh, the complexity and the mystery and the tragedy of it are all obvious and it makes sense that it would capture people's imaginations. But it's also like, you know, the, the, the iconography, if I can use that word of the case, like the pictures of Jean Bonnet and her beauty pageant uh, outfits with the makeup on, you know, these kind of like, it's kind of creepy, really, the way that you, you know, these pageant girls are kind of sexualized at such a young age and like dolled up. And um, 
I then think about like the way in which the culture, like American culture seems to have an almost like constant need to obsess about the disappearance or murder of a blonde woman. You know what I'm saying? Like maybe I, I, it seems like it's a thing, right? I feel like that's always, it's often the case, you know, these kind of like ongoing narratives that CNN or whatever news channel will sort of hang on to as a kind of ongoing story. It especially seems to be the case when it's a white blonde woman. And then Jean Bonnet is sort of like a miniaturized version of that. Um, I don't know. It's just, I, I guess like the, it's just interesting to me how the culture selects which tragedy to, um, to make it like viral. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, cause these things happen all the right. time, you know, but like this one became like a national obsession and I guess it's sensational. I guess the, you know, there's a lot of different reasons. The Christmas, was it the parents, the pageant? She was such a beautiful child, you know, such a sweet, you know, um, cute kid. And I don't know, like it's, uh, it's just interesting the way in which, uh, our media culture and news media culture grabs onto certain things and decides what what stories we're going to hang on to and what we'll obsess over and i do remember it being a really sensational right but also really creepy and weird like i remember like the tabloids with john bonnet john bonnet all done up in her makeup and just it seems so wrong like just at the grocery store like the everyday place seeing her face all in the magazine rack, like with the tabloids. It just seemed really odd to me. As a kid. And horrible. As a kid, I just remember being like, it just seemed puzzling to me. Also really interesting when you mentioned, um, you know, just this like pageant culture and dolling up little girls, just how, how, horrifying and awful that is right it's kind of like we want little girls to be women and women to be little girls it's such an opposite uh it's such opposite messaging when we think about it right like little girls get dressed up like adult women and then adult women spend forever trying to rejuvenate our youth um or maybe we don't <laughs> but i think it's it's so backwards and strange the way we flip those things yeah. it's totally different of course because a child you know doesn't necessarily have the the sense that like well this is messed up this is wrong that i'm being made to look like an adult woman whereas an adult woman can choose to you know look younger not or resist that that impulse how do you how do you relate to your you know, mall pageant childhood experiences? Was it just kind of like a frivolous fun thing or were you like really like a pageant kid? Like, were you making the rounds? <laughs> so I, I think it's really important to, to distinguish that they were the mall pageants because, so we went around to different malls where they would host them, but they weren't exactly the same as like the glitz pageants on TV, uh, where you have like the spray tans and all that. But I did get my makeup and hair done and wear, you know, dresses. Uh, mine 
for the most part, my mother made for me. Uh, she made my dresses and all my outfits. Uh, at a point, we borrowed a dress from another pageant contestant whose family was, they were wealthy and they had these like sparkly dresses. So we borrowed one of those. Um, and at the time, I think I, I liked dressing up. I liked, you know, going on stage and doing the interviews. But I think there was also this sense that there was something kind of off about it. Like I remember getting ready for one and a girl's mother hitting her with a hairbrush. Like that was just startling to me. Like that didn't happen to me, but the fact that, you know, we're sitting there, we're all getting done up like adult women and we're just little girls, you know, running around once we've got these dresses on or sitting still and waiting our turn. Um, but that was really sad to witness that. Um, but my mom actually took me out, um, after I lost a pageant and said that I didn't win because I was ugly. So that's when she was like, that's, she was like, that's enough. This is not, this is not good for you. Um, Wait, who said this to you? My mom took me out of them because I said, um, I said it in the parking lot. I was like, I didn't win because I was, uh, because I'm ugly. Oh, oh, you said it. Your mom did not say this to you. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, my mom did not say this to me. No, my oh. mom took me out of the pageants when I said that about myself. I'm sorry that came out as unclear. <laughs> I was like, damn, that's hardcore. No, no, no. That's, yeah, no, that was the end of, that was the end of pageant time for me. Well, that's good. Um, that seems like a fitting end, right? When you start getting to that level psychologically, it's not worth it. I know. I think for her, it was like just, she probably just thought I was like, yeah, I'm doing pageants like the women on TV. And then when it was that level of intensity, she was like, no, you can still do ballet, but this is like, just no. Yeah. Um, I mean, so should, I was still taking ballet. It should only ever be fun. Like, you know, if it's a kid playing dress up and it's fun and makes the kid feel empowered and special or whatever, great. But it, once it starts getting to be like, I feel less than because I didn't get the trophy or I don't know. It's just, it's fraught. It's clearly fraught territory. (laughs) Uh, Do you, do you feel like it affected you? Like, do you, like, as you've grown older, do you look back on that and be like, wow, that really fucked with my head in terms of my self image? Or do you feel like you got out of it in time to sort of escape the worst aspects of it? Yeah, I feel so it's, it's funny. I feel like my self image is like, it's probably like a culmination of like, all those things like I can tell the difference between like oh you know this is me like being down on my self-image because I've been scrolling Instagram you know those kinds of things um but in terms of the pageant I don't feel like consciously aware of that having altered me in some way I do think of ballet in that way like in my understanding of like body type I do think like dancing ballet altered my understanding of my body but I think that's that's a pretty common experience um for a lot of people who come out of years of dancing but it's also not for some for other people other people will leave it and they're like yeah it was fine you know they they come out and or they continue dancing into adulthood and it's like great exercise and a great source of joy but I think for some of us like we tap out and it's just kind of this non-negotiable like that was not a good experience but I think a lot of that can have to do with instructors and classmates and the people around you I mean it's it's 
kind of not too unlike a writing workshop or, you know, an MFA program or any experience where you have community. I think a lot of it has to do with the people around you and how they not only talk to you about, you know, your craft or your body, but also like how they talk about their own work and their own bodies. Does that make sense? Yeah. Did I yeah. go down a total? No, I think like, I think like, especially once you get to a certain level in ballet, it's pretty unforgiving. You know, you have to have, I think a certain body type to, to go the distance as a professional ballerina, right? Like you have to have like height, there's like height build requirements that are pretty brutal as I understand it. I mean, and I should asterisk this and say that my understanding is really limited, but I think I've either read that or heard that, or somebody said that to me. Is that right? I mean, the, at the time I was dancing, that's how it, that's how it was. I do think there have been changes and that there are movements to change these, these expectations and these guidelines. So I don't want to, I want to asterisk as well, because I feel like it's been so long since I've danced that I don't want to like, say it's still like this because I, I do think there are people pushing to change it. Um, but I don't think I could be a bell. I couldn't be a ballet dancer. I'm just not built for it. Right. I mean, like some people, like <laughs> it's like being a great athlete. Like I couldn't be the center for the Los Angeles Lakers either. You know, like I'm uh, yeah, like, there are just certain hard realities, you know, uh, genetically that yeah. you come up against with certain things. But, um, I don't know. Like I think of like my understanding of ballet is like limited to like black Swan, that movie where I'm just like, got a window into the intensity of that world. Um, and what it does to young women, you know, I, obviously that's melodramatic, but, uh, I can imagine how that would leave an impression. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> it did. <laughs> so where were you raised? Like, where are you from originally? I, I sense some, like some Midwest in you, in your voice, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm from Syracuse, New York, specifically Camillus. Um, so I was born born and raised in Syracuse. Um, and we moved when I was in sixth grade down to Maryland for about eight months. So my mother could care for her mother who was ill at the time. Um, and then we moved back to Syracuse and I stayed there for, you know, high school, undergrad, grad school. And then I moved to Ithaca. So I've been in central, I, I hear it called upstate. I feel like that's cheating now because I'm technically in southern tier New York, but um, it's upstate to New York City, which is where I think a lot of, a lot of writers end up. Right. But, um, you know, it's, it's weird to me sometimes that like, I've never really lived in a large, a large city. I dream of it, especially this last year, I've dreamt of being someplace warm. <laughs> without you know four or five winters um the snow kind of gets to me the gray gets to me um at a point in the winters but um my dad lived in nebraska for a bit and then in wisconsin um so i, I definitely have traveled west <laughs> but nebraska's the farthest i've gotten well yeah. is texas farther yeah actually no texas is far yeah that's farther on a map i think it depends what part in mean, so, Texas is so big, but right. Um, but, and so you went, you went like your schooling all the way through. You went to Syracuse for grad school. That was your MFA. It was, yeah. So <laughs> I did the thing. I, I feel like I did the thing that you're not not supposed to do. I'm putting it in quotes, but um, 
Yeah, so I went to Syracuse for undergrad. I didn't really have a ton of guidance applying to to colleges. So I just applied to Syracuse for undergrad. And fortunately, I got scholarships, but ended up taking a ton of loans to do my undergrad there. Um, And fortunately, the MFA program was funded. But staying through, you know, I was kind of advised, like, not by faculty, but by other writers, friends who were applying to MFA programs, like, oh, you have to go to a different school, you have to study with different people. But I was set. I, for some reason, like I really loved the faculty at Syracuse, you know, they're, they're great. I just wanted to be there. And who did you study with? I kind of, so I studied with Chris Kennedy, who ended up advising my, um, my poetry thesis in prose poems. So Chris Kennedy, um, I took a couple classes with George Saunders, took a couple like his Russians class and a short fiction class. I studied with Arthur Flowers, Bruce Smith. I studied with Mary Carr during undergrad, but I didn't take any of her her graduate courses. Uh, Michael Burkard. So, yeah, it was a. I, I wish I'd taken. I look now at um, my husband's like the classes he took because he still has some of his notes, and I wish I'd. I wish I'd taken uh, Dana Spiota taught a research class, and I wish I had signed up for that one because that would have been really cool. Um, to study with her. Yeah. Yeah. Research, huh? What what did she teach? Did you, did you pick up anything? <laughs> like now I'm no, curious. I need to, I keep saying like, I'm going to like go through and basically like take the course, like do it as independent study on my own. Like, but um, I can't remember like what, what she taught in that course. I know she taught another one that was like a semester long read of Ulysses. Damn. That would have been another really cool one to take. I, I love when people do stuff like that where you have a reading group where you can get through a book together because there are some books where it's like, I'm not going to do that on my own. I was going like to say, Moby Dick. yeah, uh, like Ulysses seems like the perfect book to do a group read that's like, you know, it's got like mm-hmm. a a guide, you know, like a tour guide essentially to lead you through it because that's a tough one. I've tried to read that book Um you know, it's been a long time since I picked it up, but I've tried before and I think I got like a hundred pages into it and I was just like, I can't, I can't, I, I couldn't hold the thread. Yeah. You need like a book club for that or, or a reading group or a class. Yeah. Social pressure. Right. You know, and it's accountability, right? It's like, you have to go to, I remember getting through Moby Dick that way. Like it was the only way I was going to read that book was if I knew I had to go and talk about it. Um, and I'm glad I did it because now I have a copy of Moby Dick with all my horrible undergrad notes. Yeah, and you can so, just you can just now, you can you can, sm- you can just be smug and talk about having read Moby Dick when you're in conversation with people. It's fantastic. Exactly. <laughs> and now, but talking to you, I'm like, what do I remember from that? Because it was so long ago. I should have started rereading it again a year ago. I need. Still, then I could have. I still need to read it. I, I got to confess, like this, I'm feeling terrible about myself that I haven't read Moby Dick. Um, I've had people press it into my hands and like recommend it to me, but I have not, like I've read parts of it. Like I've held it in my hands and like read pages, but I've never been compelled to like sit down with it. Um, but I think it says something that like we're talking about it and I can't, all I can tell you is I've read it, but I don't remember anything except that like, are the, is someone going to come take my MFA if I admit that like I don't really remember much of it besides? Um, Listen, you're talking to you're, you're talking to somebody <laughs> whose like memory for what he has read is so fleeting 
uh, like embarrassingly fleeting. And I rationalize it as a, you know, as it's a, it's a challenge that's related to volume, like the speed and volume of the reading that I have to do, you know, for this show, it's hard to hold it all. But like, I also just think like my retention, you know, a, it's probably not as good as some, but it's also, I think, um, very selective. And I have a weird confidence in that kind of memory. Like I think what, what is supposed to stick sticks, or at least this is the way that I rationalize it. (laughs) You know, like if something like you watch like a, a horror movie and there's one scene from the last house on the left that stays with you, I I'm willing to live with the idea that that's the one that was supposed to stay with me and the rest it's okay to let go. You can't hold everything unless you're one of these people with like a freaky, like perfect memory or something. Right. I am one of those people, but it's like, it's still really selective. So I'm embarrassed and I feel like I'm contradicting myself to say like, I'm one of those people with a freaky memory. Like I I, I'm told frequently by my husband that like things I remember are just weird and not uh, like photo- yeah, like photographic, that. like a photographic memory, or is it just like you you remember certain sensory details that escape most of us? Sensory details, yeah. Oh my gosh, I wish I had a photographic memory, but like I can I can like close my eyes and conjure the sense of being someplace, or you know, sitting in our local indie movie theater watching it follows like there are some things that are just so resonant. And so for me, like muscle deep, like that I can't, I can't let them go. They're following me. (laughs) I get that. Um, What is, what is it follows? I'm trying, like, I, I was trying to like place it. I never saw it. Like that's who's in that. Oh, so that one is, so it's from 2015. I feel like over the years, like, it's become, like, a thing to, like, for some people to dislike it. But most people, I think, really like this. And it will, I think it will stick with you or parts of it will stick with you if you watch it. Um, It's basically, so it's a movie about a a college student who has sex with uh, a boyfriend she's seeing and contracts this presence, this specter that he tells her it's going to follow you and so the only way she can get rid of it is by having sex with someone else who has to then pass it on um and it's this really startling beautiful film that's just i'm still taken by that movie when i think about it it like there are scenes where i'll still jump when i watch it i'll still get like goosebumps and it just really resonated with me you start to see like um you know, any character or background, you know, any extra in the background becomes, you know, a threat. Anyone walking slowly could be the monster coming to to kill her or another character in the film. So it just has this constant sense of dread. Um, and the soundtrack is amazing, too. So I think that had a lot to do with it. You know, it's just a beautiful film and the music is incredible and It'll definitely freak you out. I think I, I, I don't know anyone who hasn't been frightened by that movie. Well, since I'm now in my advanced age, uh, a coward, I will have to watch it follows like over breakfast, which is probably the only time I can comfortably watch a scary movie and give myself enough time to like work it out of my system, you know, so that I can sleep at night. Yeah. 
Yeah, breakfast. Maybe maybe you could do it for brunch. Yeah. No later than brunch. <laughs> no, it's a, no later uh, than brunch. You got to come down after yeah, that. <laughs> I, yeah, it's like a brunch threshold for terrifying imagery. That's where I'm at. Um, so I want to ask you before I let you go, if you're working on anything new, like what's, are you just enjoying the publication of this one or are you like juggling multiple projects? Yeah. So when I sent this out, I, I'm someone who's always working on something. So I fell into writing some fiction and so that's kind of growing into, it has grown into a novel, um, since publication a month ago, I've kind of like definitely tabled that because <laughs> um, I just can't I mean I feel like I'm in two brain spaces like trying to share and promote the essays while trying to work on the novel just won't happen so I'm hoping to go back into it this summer and see if I still like it like I have a whole draft but it's a mess so <laughs> and what is it a novel we'll see did you say it's a novel it's a novel it's yeah it's my secret novel <laughs> is it in this poetic mode no, <laughs> it's not. So there are stretches that do get po- that have that. Po- like I think that. So I think that we write the way we we write, and you can change, you can evolve. And so I say, no, it's not in this poetic mode, but it probably totally is. Like there, you know, it's kind of unavoidable that I'm always going to write the way that I write, and I can change. I can, you know, add dialogue. There can be humor. But I do think like my creative DNA is a particular way. And and I like that. You know, I think that it wouldn't be a Gina book if I didn't, you know, stick to some of the things that I that I do. So we'll see, though. (laughs) You know, I could like open it up and decide this is terrible. This was the worst idea ever. Um, but yeah. I'm eager to, to see how I feel about it. Okay. So uh, one more question as an extension of this thought is the relationship that writers have with their own work. I'm speaking from a personal experience standpoint, and it's, it's just so strange how much fluctuation there can be in terms of how we relate to what we've written. You can do a draft of a book, put it in the drawer for a few weeks, come back to it, pick it up read it and be like, Oh my God, like I did it. Like, this is fucking brilliant. I love my book. And then you can like table it for like another two weeks and you pick it up and you're just like, this. just like a wall. I mean, maybe you have not had this experience. So forgive me if I'm projecting it onto you, but you can pick it up or I can pick it up and be like, this is a flaming piece of shit that will like ruin my family name for generations. You know, you get into this like tragic mode and it's like, how can there be this much variance? Like, like, I guess neither is true. Neither sentiment is true. And the question that it begs for me is like, how do we get an accurate assessment of our own work? It just feels like, uh, like a deeply frustrating experience at bottom for me. Cause it's like, man, if I can swing this wildly, how am I ever going to get clear sight? At some point, I guess you just, I don't know, you get comfortable enough to just like send it out into the world. <laughs> right. Well, but I feel like I've had both experiences, more of the latter, where I'll pick something up and just be like, I'm going to set this on fire. I can't do this again. This is horrible. Um, you know, I think it's very rare for me to hold something and say, 
oh, I did it. And to pat it and be like, good dog. Like this is done, you know, I, because I'm a perfectionist and I think I'm always like, I could work on something forever, but at a point, like things have to be let go. And, you know, I tell myself like, do a good job and revise and make it the best book it can be, but also like know when it's time to step away or let it go, whether that's writing something else or, um, you know, sending out the one book. But I do think the way we reconcile that is by continuing to write because when you toggle between things, you learn something to carry back to the project you're not satisfied with right? Like, or you find something better to work on. But I do think that it's helpful to have that latter mindset of I'm going to set this on fire, because that's the only way to like, improve something to feel like it's not quite there. Because otherwise, we'd just be patting ourselves on the back saying this is great. And that's all it's going to be, you know. So I think when you have that sense of, you know, dissatisfaction, it gives you room to grow and to do better. Yeah, I mean, it's like a, it's like some sort of like delicate equilibrium. You know, if you're too self-critical, mm. then I think it can lead to paralysis. I think it can also lead you in extreme cases to maybe dismantling what is otherwise strong work, you know? Like you can get sort of like pathological mm. about it. But, um, you know, I think it's like the the difficult dance comes at the point of letting something go, like knowing when it's time to let it go, when to step away. Um, I think that's mm -hmm. part of the art maybe is like somebody who's got like a real, I don't know, I, you get enough practice or you get strong enough at, uh, the craft of writing, you start to be able to intuit that moment, maybe with greater accuracy than somebody who's at an earlier stage. Um, it's a struggle, I think for us all to find that moment and to, to get it right. But it's just, there's something I think darkly funny about the wild swings. <laughs> like, there is. Well, and what I love too about it, about the wild swings, about just kind of going back and forth is there's no, and this is what makes writing so cool is that, and frustrating is that there's no rule. Like I get up and write every day. And when I come in my office, like there's no, what I think is kind of punk about it is that like, I'm not on the clock. I'm not like, I don't have to do anything except what I feel like doing. And I think that to me is something that makes it totally worthwhile that there's no like cookie. There's no like, Oh, I have to do this. You know, there's so much bullshit that we're encouraged to want or go for. And for me, like that's what keeps the work interesting is that it can be whatever I want it to, you know, morph into. And it doesn't have to be this, it doesn't have to be this really self-conscious, self-critical thing. Um, there's a time for that, but it can also be this really loose, just dream space. And I think, I don't know, that's why I keep doing it. You know, it's uh, it's nice to have time where you just don't owe anything to anyone. Totally. And I think, you know, one of the, what, what I found, I especially, like I've had this experience in recent, uh, you know, recently over the past year where like my relationship with literary criticism can be complicated. Like some of it can be really excellent. I usually like literary criticism where the critic injects his or her own life into the criticism. Um, 
like when it when they put some skin in the game i like that i respond well to it but what i found at the level of um being a writer that is useful to me is when i've read a book and then i go after the fact to read uh reviews that uh, often like and especially when they contradict my own take on the book or they add something or or um you know highlight something that i missed and it's kind of simple but it's powerful to me is that it just it's like a, a reminder of the range of experience and the you know the total subjectivity of the reading experience like I've had books that I've read that didn't really do it for me. And then I'll read a review and it like the review is just gushing. And I love that at the level of being a writer. Does that make sense? You know, like it's like, okay, it's okay. There's space for it all. And, uh, you know, just because one person loves it doesn't mean somebody else has to or vice versa. And, you know, uh, everything I'm saying is sort of obvious, but it's important for me to get reminders, I guess. I love those reminders. Like it's, I find them helpful too, right? To see that there's range and that it's not just like, oh, I didn't really like this. Everyone else doesn't like, you know, because that, that's just not an interesting book. When people all are in agreement that, you know, something is perfect or something is horrible, there's no conversation to be had there. There's no reconciling of differences or trying to understand, well, what did I miss? Or, um, you know, or even just I hadn't seen it that way. And so that's, I, I think that's really important for readers, but especially for writers to, to have that sense of, you know, range, but also just knowing, you know, some people just aren't going to like what we do. And some people it's really going to land with them. And that I think is what's really cool. Like this possibility that your work can reach someone and you don't know how it affects them. You don't know, you know, who they're recommending it to. I guess the opposite can be true too, but let's stick with the nice stuff. Right. Right. <laughs> like, the possibility that like, you know, it's, I, I think that's what's so cool is books can have long lives that, you know, the authors know nothing about, you know, that's, that's really cool to me. I like the cosmic timing aspect of it. You know, when a book, like I, I know this uh, from being a reader, like a book will hit me, at just the right time, or I'll find it at just the right time in my life where whatever is between its covers is exactly what I need at that moment. And, you know, it feels like uh, magical in that way. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I mean, some of it is sensibility, subject matter, voice, like whatever set of, you know, set of variables that are uh, combining to connect with somebody. But I think timing too, you know, the, the life circumstances of the person on the receiving end. Um, you know, it's, it's hard for me to process it as anything other than kind of magical when you factor in the complexity of it. And, um, there's nothing better, I think, as a reader than having that experience. And there's nothing better as a writer, as a writer than hearing from somebody who found your book that way. Like, cause that's kind of what you're hoping for, right? I mean, is, is to, to send it out into the world and uh like as a kind of life raft you know like here you go if anybody needs it and to you sort of find some right. find somebody who you know is drowning in a particular way and your book is it's uh flotation or their flotation device uh i hope that's an okay metaphor <laughs> right i think it is yeah i think it is and i definitely i definitely have those books where i'm like 
this came, like, I just found them at the right time or, you know, someone was like, I was reading their reviews and was like, oh, I need that in my life. And I think Chelsea Hodson's Tonight I'm Someone Else was one of those for me, like, where I just was like, this book found me at the right moment. And, and of course, those books can unlock other books, you know, I, it's like breadcrumbs. Yes. Oh, what does this person recommend? What do they like to read? And I think when you start following those breadcrumbs, then it's, I don't know, to me, it almost seems like that's one way, like, not being in New York City, that's one way I, I come to the, the coven, the group of poet essayists, is I just kind of like, take recommendations or see what people are reading or, you know, and, and take those to heart and read them myself and see if they land. Yeah. No, I mean, I think like, yeah, it's, it's interesting, like coming at it from the perspective of a writer, you know, the, these books and the breadcrumbs, you know, that you sort of follow and pick up along the way. Um, you know, they, it's not just like a nourishing reading experience. It's like showing you how to work, you know, like it's mm-hmm. giving, it gives me like a sense of possibility or even just that inspiration. Like I think in one of the interviews you did, like a print interview you did, you talked about reading Sarah Manguso and like, you know, speaking of me using questionable metaphors, like I feel like certain books have like a laxative effect, <laughs> uh, if I may <laughs> go there. And it's like, you keep them almost, you keep them as like a desk reference, you know, and if you're stuck or you're feeling like the well has run dry, uh, you know, just like a blah day, uh, like often that's a sign mm-hmm. I think that you need to, you need intake, you know, and certain books function that way for me. Like I can pick up a, a certain novel and, or whatever it is. And, um, like, it'll be like, okay, yeah, this is why I'm doing this. You know, this is why I'm putting myself through this or it will activate, like I can listen to certain music that's like really lyrically charged for me. And I, it can activate the part of my brain that, um, you know, uh, is very languagey. Uh, so I don't know, like I, I, I definitely responded to that and I love Sarah's work too. She's been on the show before, like, a there's kind of yeah. something great about the way that she does her thing because it seems very unique and like very specific to her in in the way of like the best art. Yeah. And three, a uh, 300 arguments. That was the, that was the book I had mentioned, I think in the interview where it's like my, my desk reference where it's like, your da- we're sorry, stuck, it's, we're your, it's your desk laxative. Can we just stick with this please? <laughs> the desk. La- I, I'm sorry. I don't want to ruin your me- metaphor. Um, but I just, I'll go to that and I can sit with it. Agua Viva by Clarice Lispector is another one. We're all just, and usually what ends up happening when I go to these, though, is like, I'll be like, okay, I'm done writing for the day. And I'm just reading now. <laughs> but right. um, that's great. I think that's good sometimes. You know, we need that. Well, I think, too, like we can hold ourselves to these, like, you know, difficult slash impossible standards of productivity. I think writers tend to like self-enforce, you know, it's like this discipline that you have to maintain getting up every morning and going to the desk and keeping a word count and you know, meanwhile, like on your Twitter feed, there's news of book deals and people publishing and, you know, all, all of that sort of uh, can contribute to an internal sense of pressure at the level of productivity. Mm-hmm. But reading it, it, taking in work, like reading, it's it can get lost in the shuffle sometimes. It's such a vital part of the process. Like you have to make time for that. It is the work. Uh, it also happens to be, I think, super enjoyable. <laughs> right. <laughs> and 
it, you know, it looks like you, I mean, you can do it on a beach. Let's just be honest. You can go to the lake and be working, but you have to read. And I have lost that thread too often in my professional life due to a variety of reasons, like, you know, work, family, the speed of life, all the different things that go on. Um, and whenever I lose it, eventually I notice it not only in my work, but also just in my life. You know what I'm saying? Like it's like when I'm reading and I'm reading well and I'm finding books that work for me, I'm a happier person, if that makes sense. Oh no, I totally, I, I, I'm right there with you. Like if I'm not getting my reading time in, like I am not a fun person to be around. I'm similar if I'm not getting my writing time in, but, (laughs) um, and I feel like it's weird like this last year it's weird i'm i'm someone who hasn't felt distracted like reading for me is the is one of the things i've done to stay like moderately okay this last year like if i didn't have books if i didn't read i would have just wilted it would have i just would not have been in a good place like it was my thing um because you know i was like looking into um Last year was the first year I was, like, trying to find work in a few years, like, a real, no freelance, like, job that just fizzled with the pandemic. So, you know, and that's still where I'm at. But, like, I just keep reading and I'm like, it's all going to be fine. We're going to figure it out. But, um, right, you know, if you, I think if you can, like, read too and just give yourself to that time, it starts to feel a little less dire, right? Like, reading about other people's lives. I think, you know, it comes back to like, it's all okay, you know, and there's urgency in my life, but like, I don't need to feel like the super urgency that I think I sometimes apply to those things like work and, you know, I'm able to kind of slow down a little and like live in a book for a while and just feel like it's going to be good. Well, I think, I think it functions as an escape, which is, you know, entirely defensible and part of the fun but it also can function as a bridge like it's like okay i'm not the only one that's going through shit which books often point out to me uh and i think too it's just the you know i guess this is tied to the idea of escape but it's like the whatever happens to me neurologically when i spend an hour reading is something that I need. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's related to smartphone culture and just the speed, the speed and volume of all the bullshit coming at us on a daily basis. Um, You know, a a paper book in particular for me enforces um, a kind of slowness that is very good for me and like good for my brain. Yeah. I'm saying, you know, Yeah, it slows the mind. It like, it hones our attention. And it kind of just, for me, like it it brings me back to like, a neutral, like grounded place. You know, sometimes like going for a walk will do that. But honestly, like, sitting with a book is just as pleasing (laughs) to me. Like, you know, it's, it's strange sometimes, like in this last year, I felt like some of the spaces I used to visit and find calm have been like lots of people have been going out for walks and hiking and going to my favorite cemetery, you know, all those spaces where I used to love being like alone, um, which sounds very selfish. I know I have to share the spaces, Um, but 
I've missed that feeling of being outside and just like having no people around. So in some ways, like the escape of a book and just being able to lean into that is something that I've really cherished because it's, you know, it's uninterrupted, just focus on something that's not glowing. It's not selling me something. It's not yelling at me. It's not making me upset, you know, or if it is, it's in a way that is in the, it's contained within the pages of the book, right? Um, maybe in our world too, but I do think that, yeah, it's getting off that phone. It's putting that phone in the other room. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, I, I so enjoyed your book. I enjoyed talking with you uh, and meeting you. Hopefully at some point, you know, in our post-pandemic existence, um, we can meet in person, but I appreciate the time and congrats and best of luck uh, with this novel that is currently incubating. Thank you, Brad. I really appreciate you talking with me. All right, there you go. That's Gina Nutt. Her new essay collection, Night Rooms, is available now from $2 Radio. You can find Gina on the internet at ginanutt.com. She's also on Instagram. Her handle there is at Gina Gale. G-A-I-L, Gina Gale. Again, the book is called Night Rooms. Go get your copy right now. The Other People Podcast is a listener-supported show. If you like this program, if you listen regularly, support the show if you can. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat, tip your server. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support this show over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. You can get stuff. You can get a coffee mug, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a sticker, a book club membership. I'll write you a postcard. I'll wish you a happy birthday. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Check it out. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It, too, is free. Go get the app wherever you get apps. It's a good app. If you have something to say and you would like to write to me, the email address for the program is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Next week on the program, who's it going to be? Ooh, Alyssa Washuda. She's got a new essay collection. A lot of essayists lately. Alyssa Washuda's got a new essay collection out right now on uh, Tin House, I believe. It is called White Magic. Really enjoyed that one. Had a great conversation with Alyssa Washuda. Stay tuned for her episode next week. Otherwise, I just want to apologize for talking about my colonoscopy on uh, the program. That's uncalled for. It's unnecessary. And uh, I don't know what happened. I guess it's just on my mind. It's kind of a process. It's, it kind of consumes you, if you know what I mean. And uh, maybe I'll have to do a, a wrap-up now, next week, and let you know how it, how it goes. Okay. Okay. <laughs>